0: well good morning again if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians we will continue our work through this important epistle Paul writing to the church in Colossi warning them of the dangers of the false teacher in their presence working through important doctrines reaffirming their union with Christ Um, In the first two chapters, we have Paul setting forth the doctrine that gives impetus and gratitude for the conduct that we engage in as outlined in chapter 3, which we have been talking about, and that's a very important point. Paul's overarching theme throughout the epistle is the importance of our union with Jesus Christ, and and that union is a consequence of God's working and our salvation Um, as he has clothed us in a new man and has given us and fitted us to live in the context of his kingdom and to do the the things that please him. And so it's important for us to be mindful of that as we begin to look at all of these imperatives or commands, if you will, that are found in chapter 3 and in, frankly, the balance of the epistle. And so today, again, we're going to be looking back at the book of Genesis to help us better understand Paul's instructions found in verses 18 and 19 in particular. Um, Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get back into this particular text. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for loving us first. We thank you for your sovereign work in our lives and for bringing us to you, for giving us new life and, and giving us the hope that we have now in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that, that great mercy, that great grace that you have extended to us. We ask, Lord, this morning that you would help us to be mindful of what is contained in the scripture that we'll be studying, to be uh, mindful of what your creative mandate is, what your creative order is for the home and for uh, a husband and wife in marriage. Uh, Help us to appreciate these things. We're bombarded by so many different ideas and perspectives from the world that we often forget that you spoke to these things and spoke about these things first. And so we should go back to you and understand what you have said and live our lives in accordance with them, giving you all the glory that you are due. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Open our hearts and minds to receive the word that you have for us this morning. Help us to be encouraged by the fact that you are reigning and ruling and that you are in control of all things. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. Chapter 3. We'll begin with verse 12, again, just to give us context in Colossians, and we're going to move back over to Genesis. So, uh, Genesis, or rather, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another the idea of forbearance and forgiving each other the principle of forgiveness, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Christ is our example. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And So as we transition from this picture of our, sanctifi- our sanctification, visualizing our election, if you will, as, as communicated in verse 12... We, we move then into the reality of this new creational lifestyle that, that is so important for us. As the redeemed of God, as new creation in Jesus Christ, Christians live in a different way. And so we begin to see that being unpackaged here in verse 12, and now moving into the very practical application of what goes on in a marriage. And so Paul says in verse 18, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So, last Sunday, we began to unpackage the basis for Paul's exhortation. And so, let's go back to where we were last week in the book of Genesis and begin to look at, again, some other portions of Scripture and to... Um, briefly review what we looked at last week in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings, right? And so we understand that and we want to make certain that we understand that what God ordained in the beginning is very important. And oftentimes the struggle that people have with verse 18 in Colossians chapter 3 is that they have forgotten what God gave us at the beginning as it relates to the relationship between a husband and And a wife. The whole principles that Paul uses and we find elsewhere in Scripture from Peter and Christ himself can be found back in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. And so we want to make certain, and ladies in particular, because I know verse 18 can often be a struggle. We live in a day and age when, when feminism and, and, and all these things have crept into the church and have undermined what Scripture teaches as it relates to the relationship between a husband and a wife. This is not about the idea that one is lesser or one is better. It's important to recognize that. We spoke to the issue of equality last week and the importance of understanding that in terms of each one's respective role as God ordained at the very beginning. And so as we look at Genesis, we considered last week verses 26, 27, and 28 in chapter 1. And we understand that both Christ and Peter and Paul affirmed the truthfulness of the Genesis record and based their teaching on the role of men and women on this very passage and passages that we'll look at as well. What we understand this is that God created, um, that, that, that men and women were created in, in equal in God's image. We looked at that last week. Um, and we see that there was a priority in terms of the order, and we'll consider that in more detail today. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man, and in the Hebrew that's Adam, which means man, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over all the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over... As we note, every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we wanted to make some observations about that particular passage. The the following observations are very important as we work through this. First, God created the human race male and female. We cannot forget that, Christian. We are being bombarded by so many different things in our culture and otherwise, and even from some within the church who are trying to convince us that there can be some level of fluidity in the context of gender. Well, you'll notice that God is referring here to the biological sex categories of male and female. And there is no fluidity in that regard. We see that God made two sexes at creation. That's what we're told. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so as a believer, as a Christian, your your truth foundations are found in God's word. And so when someone says to you that a man is a woman and a woman is a man, and, and that maybe they're not either, then you need to go back to God's Word and says, Is that right? Is that what God said? Is that what God did? As a Christian, our minds are formed by the content of God's Word. We don't get to go rogue. We're not mavericks. There are no maverick molecules, as we know. God is in control. God is in charge. And God has ordained a creative order as it relates to the biological sexes of male And female. As Christians, we must affirm that. There's no wiggle room. There's no no play in that at all. And so we want to make certain that we're confident and affirmative of that in our communication about that important truth. It's interesting, too, that um, um, in in regards to this issue of male and female, there's, a, there's an issue as it relates to why did God make male and female in his own image. Um, in the catechism written by uh, uh, Pastor Gordon, we, we see this em- emphasized by the question that he asked at number five. Why did God make us male and female in his own image? The answer to that question is this, that we might use all of the excellent qualities with which he made us in true righteousness and holiness in body and soul as male and female for his glory as we exercise dominion over the earth. The next question, but aren't we able to make a distinction between biological sex and gender in, such a, in search of our identity? The answer is no. God established a natural order in the creation of male and female that is good for us as image bearers of God. To introduce gender as a new category of personhood, separate from the biological category of sex in pursuit of a different sexual identity is unnatural to the creation order and harmful to the purpose for which God made us. So there is harm that is attendant with deviating from God's creative order and his his design, if you will, of each of us. I think it's significant, too, that he indeed made male and female, and he made them differently, and he made them differently for a reason for a purpose in the context of, of reflecting his glory and so that there could be an exercise of dominion that is consistent with God's creative mandate. And so bearing in mind too that there is certainly a purpose and a plan that God has as it relates to his creative mandate for men and women. What we know from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, in terms of observations that we need to make, last week we talked about number one, God created the human race, male and female, that's clear. There's no other category. There's there's not a category that says non-binary. There's nothing in this passage that would even lead one to conclude that that's a possibility. And so when you hear that, that's a lie. That's not the truth. And we can know the truth because God has given it to us in his word. This is why we have it. And so we need to rely upon it. God created the human race male and female. Secondly, God created both the man and the woman in his image. And so the fact that both sexes individually bear God's image demonstrates that they are equal in dignity and being. They have different roles, but they're equal in dignity and being. That's clearly what God's Word teaches. We need to make certain that we understand that. Now, what the world does is they they approach this passage and say, well there there is a diminishing of the female in the terms of the issue of submission as we find in Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 and other passages in scripture that speak to this issue that's not the case at all there is perfect equality in the mind of God in terms of dignity and being but there is a distinction in their roles you have even each of us have even been designed differently there there is different There's differences in terms of our anatomy, our bone structure. All of those things, emotions, all of those things are different, but there is still equality and dignity in both. But there is a distinction in the roles. We need to make certain that we're clear about that. And so God created the human race, male and female. God created both the man and the woman in his image. And three, God commanded both the man and the woman to multiply and rule on the earth. That's important. So the third point, God commanded both the man and the woman to multiply and rule the earth. What we find here then is that God crowned the man and woman as king and queen of the earth. That's, that's pretty clear from the passage. They're the first ones, and they're given this responsibility and this authority that flows then to their progeny. That is our responsibility in the terms of what God has ordained as part of his creative mandate, and we cannot forget that. And what did he tell them? And this is so important, and I'm concerned about this. He commanded them to multiply and rule the earth. Now, importantly, there's an issue here about multiplication, that we are to continue to propagate our own kind in accordance with God's creative mandate. We lament the fact today that... that, that it seems the younger generation isn't having children, and they're, they're waiting to have children, and they're not having children, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Most of them in defiance of God's creative mandate to multiply. Now, that's what he told them to do. I didn't write it, and you didn't write it. God wrote it. You know, this old phrase it says you find on bumper stickers sometimes, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, I think it just says God said it, that settles it, the, whether I believe it or not doesn't matter, but we are to multiply, and we're to rule the earth, there is to be a responsibility, we see that Adam had that mandate, he named the animals, he was responsible for that, it was the abrogation of that ruling mandate that ultimately led to his fall, because as he watched Eve being tempted by the serpent, he should have thrown him out and not entertained him. These mandates are based on the fact that both bear equally the divine image. Thus, they can rule the earth and give birth to others who bear the same divine image. Of course, abortion has made a mockery of that. It's a shaking of the hand, it's a fistic God. I I will control, I will not multiply, I will be the one in charge of everything. Abortion has at its heart a defiance against God. People may say it's a man's world, but God says it's his world. He created both men and women as necessary parts of his plan for humans to rule and fill the earth. We are to multiply. This whole thing about the fact that we're going to overpopulate the earth, like Bill Gates is so worried about, and all this issue about population control that's coming out of the World Economic Forum that we heard this past week, is rubbish. We can't overfill the planet. There's no limitation on the multiplication. You think God created a planet that could not control or could not contain his intended multiplication? of the human race of course not of course not yet we buy into all this nonsense that we're hearing today christians one and christians two do the same thing Bind into all the things that are being passed off as as right and proper when they're in fact great uh, directly in defiance of god's word so we see thirdly god commanded both the man and the woman to multiply And rule the earth fourth we find that god named the human race man this is significant now again what we're doing here is this colossians 318 says wives are to submit to their husbands this begs the question as to why why would they do that why are they exhorted and directed to do that the foundation for paul's instruction in colossians 318 is found in the book of genesis chapter 1 chapter 2 and chapter 3 As I said last week, ladies, as you step into verse 18, you do so on the foundation laid at the beginning by God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you don't do that, what you end up doing is stepping into verse 18 of chapter 3 on the basis of what the world says about it, not what God says about it. And that's wrong. You're a Christian. Christians listen to what God says and heed what he says, and they rejoice in it. So as you move into verse 18, you do so understanding that you're fulfilling the dignified role that God has ordained for you. It's not about being lesser. It's not about being being of, of, of lesser dignity, as the world would say. It's about doing what pleases the Lord. That's what it's about. And so you want to make certain that you approach it from that standpoint. If you don't, then it gets all twisted. But, but clearly, this is what God's Word says. Now, I know perhaps in the context of the world, it's not very popular. It doesn't sell well. You can't build churches on it. You've got to be kidding me, pastor. You're going to be talking about women submitting to their husbands? Yeah, I am, because that's the verse God gave me to preach on next. Now I knew I would get here eventually. I've been kind of delaying. <laughs> but here we are, right? And God is good. And blessed be his name. And so we rejoice in this. And men, you're, you're not out of this either. Keep in mind that we're going to get into verse 19. And so as you step into verse 19, you do so understanding God's creative order and design for a man based upon the content of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to submit to you that most men have abrogated the creative mandate and given it over to their wives. They're not leading their homes. They're not instructing their children. They're not the spiritual leader of their home. They're capitulate on everything, and they're typically just silent. That's wrong, and that's sin. Too many men have been Oprahized, if you will, emasculated by the view and everything else that's going on out there and they're not living in the context of god's creative order and mandate be a man step into it lead love your wife treat her with dignity treat her with respect as god has ordained that is the mandate and lead your family for pete's sake So we see that God named the human race man. So this is important. Verse 26 tells us, let us make man in our image. The word man is used here in the sense of mankind or human race. As I said last Sunday, there is only one human race. There are not multiple human races. There are ethnic. There's ethnic diversity within the human race, but there's only one human race. Don't believe the idea that we are constantly told that there are multiple races. There are not. There's only one. And as I noted, you have a significant atonement problem if there are, because you would have had to have a separate Jesus Christ for each race in order for his atoning work to be sufficient. So Christians who buy into that idea are rejecting a very important dynamic that's in Scripture. So don't go there. So here the word man is used here in the sense of mankind or human race, not in the sense of of the male biological category. This use of the word man is is, is called the generic use. It includes men and women as a class, that is, as human beings. What is noteworthy, however, is this. It's that God chose to use the name of one of the sexes, man, to designate the whole human race in Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, this is even more clearly brought out. It notes, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. God didn't use the term woman generically to describe the whole human race. He didn't say, let us make woman in our image, nor did he say, let us make mortals in our image. He said, man. He said, man. What this does for us is that it causes us to make an observation that God's naming of the race man proclaims male headship. Male headship, and that's important. And again, this is how we approach verse 18, and then how we're going to approach verse 19 as well. So now we move to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, which is a crucial, decisive passage for our study. It's a battleground chapter. One cannot understand the roles of male and female, and the debate among many without grasping the significance of Genesis chapter 2. It is the foundation of the rest of the Bible's teaching on the sexes. This is the chapter that is foremost in the minds of Christ and his apostles when they teach on marriage and the roles of men and women. This is important. One commentator has noted with respect to the significant nature of verses eighteen through twenty-five of chapter two, the New Testament draws a, the New Testament draws account of creation back to the Word of God, where they would discover God's normative design for marriage. The same is true for us today. If we want to understand God's will for the sexes, we must follow Christ's example. We must follow His example. So Genesis chapter two, let's go there. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. And let's read what we have. We'll use some selected verses here. We'll begin with verse seven. Then, God, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse fifteen. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Verse sixteen. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this, this portion of chapter 2 is certainly pivotal for us to understand what God ordered in regards to the role of the sexes. And so Genesis chapter 2, as I've noted, is foremost in the minds of Christ and his apostles when they teach on marriage and the roles that each play in that so taken at face value these verses are scandalous to the ears of most modern secular and religious people indeed even within the church they're rejected we've talked about that there are those out there who take a position that we can't even be confident of the content of chapter two because they reject it as being authoritative and even genuine they refer to it as poetry mere narrative And even question its authenticity, but we accept it as the word of God and it's true and we rely upon that. This is not some ancient myth. This is not a fable. Again, if you reject Genesis chapter 2, if you reject the verses that we've just read, the rest of the Bible falls apart. If you get the beginning wrong, you're going to get the rest of it wrong. If you reject what God is saying here, then you're going to end up with a construction of Scripture that is just not going to work. And it's going to end up failing because it doesn't have a proper foundation. It will not be based upon what God has said. What God has said. Now, again, as Christians, we rely upon this. And if, as Paul said, if, if ultimately, if, if all the things that were being taught about Christ and the content of Scripture are not true, we're the greatest fools who have ever lived. We must approach this with confidence. We have to rely upon what it contains. Now, there are those out there within the church and elsewhere within the secular culture um, that are undermining this ultimately and attacking it. We have even within the church those who hold to an egalitarian position and believe that Genesis 2 um, is, is not about the issue of roles, but rather uh, is simply uh, communicating... Um, an idea of subordination and hardship for women. That simply cannot be the case. There are those who would say that Genesis, the Genesis creation account cannot justifiably be used to demonstrate the existence of male authority and female subordination before the fall. A former professor and founder of Willow Creek Community Church wrote this, "...any teaching that inserts an authority structure between Adam and Eve and God's creation design from Genesis 1 and 2, is to be firmly rejected since it's not founded on the biblical text. Well, we know where Willow Creek is today. However, Genesis chapter 2 presents six vital truths that are essential to our understanding of the New Testament teaching on the role of men and women. And we want to look at those six vital truths, and these are very important for us to understand from Genesis chapter 2. So number one, God made Adam the central character. That's what we have in Genesis chapter 2. God made Adam the central character. As one commentator has noted, all the action and events revolve around the man. He occupies center stage. Everything else, including the woman, has a supporting role. Now again, men, as we step into chapter 3, verse 19 of Colossians You need to remember that. You need to remember what it is that God intended for the man to fulfill and the centrality of his role as it relates to the responsibility that he was given in regards to the mandate that God ordained for him. So man occupies the center stage. The male, not the female, is given the name. The generic name, born by the human race as a whole, Adam or man. The male is the one to whom God speaks in the narrative. We see that in verse 16. He is the first to receive divine revelation and instruction. The animals are brought for naming to the male, not the female. Genesis 2, 19 and 20. The woman is made from the man, not the man from the woman. Chapter 2, verse 22. The woman is also made for the man and brought to him, not vice versa. Chapter 2, verse 18 and verse 22. Afterwards, it is the man who speaks and makes a theological comment about the woman's creation, not vice versa. Chapter 2, verse 23. It is the male who names the female, not vice versa. Chapter 2, verse 23. Thus viewed from every possible angle, the whole narrative in Genesis 2 is the story of how God created the man and provided in every way for his well-being. The other activities recorded in Genesis 2 are all relative to the man's existence, nature, and needs. This includes the creation of the woman. This chapter simply cannot be read in any other way. Now, some of you are going to say, I find that offensive. I I don't like that, Pastor. Okay. That's what it says. Now, when you approach it from that standpoint, you're approaching it from the standpoint of how the world approaches it. Your, Your position, your posture, your response is not the one that would be honoring to God and and recognition, recognition of his creative mandate, but one that would reject it on the basis of saying, that's not the way I would have done it. That's not the way I think it is. I'm going to reject that and proceed in a different way, which is what we see happening in the world today. But God indeed did make Adam the central character. We understand, too, that the second point, the second essential truth to take from chapter 2 and the verses that we've looked at is that God created Adam first. As we've noted, God created Adam first. God created the man before he created the woman. That's just the way the text is. Before Eve was formed, God placed Adam in the garden to care for it. Chapter 2, verse 15. Before Eve was formed, God brought the animals to Adam to be named verse 19. Before Eve was formed, God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Adam was the Lord of the earth. Indeed, Adam was the human race, the first human. He represented the human race, and it was embodied in him. So the the creation priority of the man is not an incidental fact. Adam's prior creation, or his being created first, has fundamental significance for us. As we look at chapter 2, we can't lose sight of the fact that God created Adam first. That's what he did. And we don't have to guess at this significance because the New Testament provides a divinely inspired commentary on Genesis chapter 2. According to the principles of Bible interpretation, the Bible is its own best commentary. Scripture interprets Scripture. Thus, the same God who breathed out the words of Genesis 2 inspired Paul to comment on the true meaning of those words. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul commented on Genesis 2 by writing in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created. Verse 13, part A. Now, of course, this passage today is really getting beat up and pushed around. There are those who say it was only relevant for that time period. We're not reading it correctly. That's not what Paul really meant. Well, I don't know what else Paul could have meant. I mean it has a pretty plain meaning. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created. The whole predicate of the direction, the command, is based upon the creative order found in Genesis chapter 2, that God created Adam first. That's what it says. So, the New Testament As we've just seen, uses the fact of Adam's prior creation to demonstrate that God designed the man to be the primary leader and teacher of the family of God, both in the context of the church and in the home. Dads, remember, we're going to get to verse 19 and we're going to get to verse 20 and 21, and we're going to talk about what it means to be a dad and, and how that all works in the context of your responsibility. It's all based upon the content of Genesis chapter 2, so I'm laying foundation for both passages. That is your responsibility. To abrogate it, to not do it, to fail to do it is sin. It doesn't mean that you're hip or you're cool or that you're, you're with it. It means that you're in defiance of God's creative order. And I would submit to you that's why homes often are not what they ought to be and why there's so much chaos and turmoil within the home. There's a failure to recognize the proper order within the home as it relates to God's creation of Adam first. The leadership model provided in both the Old and New Testament is that men primarily lead the people of God. Men primarily lead the people of God. This is not to say that women don't have responsibilities and roles within the church as outlined and as ordained by the Lord. But they have to be consistent with what God ordained. It's insignificant to me that Paul would write to a church, or write to a pastor, rather, Timothy, and give him this instruction. Because Timothy's going to have to deal with this in the church that he goes to. He was, the church, he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We know that. And so this is instruction that he would have carried with him from Paul. We see that obviously then that God did this for the purpose of maintaining the creative order and mandate that's contained um, in Genesis chapter two. now again, you can approach this in one of two ways: you can get mad or you can praise God for what He has done. Those are your options and and you can say, well, you know, like when you approach something and you hear you know you tell a kid to do something and They may say, well, you know, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. I hope that you're not approaching this passage in that way. And my prayer for you is that the Lord would soften your heart and that you would then begin to reform your thinking to be consistent with Scripture because that's what you're called to do. Interestingly enough, Paul would also say this, that Christians are to take every thought captive to the word God. Of God, This doesn't mean you're each and every individual thought that you have throughout today, although our minds should be governed by the principles of God's word, but it means that as you are hearing things from the world, ideas from the world, philosophies from the world, you have to hear them and say, is that what God said? That is to take that thought captive to the word of God you don't get to formulate it on your own. You go back to God's word and you say, did he say that? Are there really guys who can be girls and girls that can be guys? Are there people who can't be anything? No. Why? Because God explains that to me in Genesis chapter one. Is is a man responsible for leading his home? Yes. Yes i 've been told that I have to give that over, that if i don 't give it over, then i 'm going to be a male chauvinist pig. Well, no, you 're not because God said this is what you 're supposed to do. So when you hear that, that is an idea of the world that you as a believer are to take captive to the Word of God. Dads, your kids come home and they say to you, well, our teacher said this, that, and the other thing about guys can be girls and and vice versa, and people can't be anything, or they can change it, and all this is fluid. You hear that, and as the dad, the Christian dad in the home, you say to your child then, no, that is not what God says, and you take them back because, as we know, the primary responsibility of the the father within the home with the children is to instruct them in the word of God. You need to know it. Now, mom and dads do that together, but it's dad's primarily responsibility to instruct in that way. So we take our thoughts captive that way, and so I want to challenge you to do that because we have been inundated with so many different ideas and concepts that are contrary to Scripture. So the New Testament builds upon the creative mandate and the role established because of the priority of Adam's creation. That's the whole predicate for the instruction that Paul gives in verse 18. Submission arises out of this very idea. Now, it's not a submission, as we've talked about, that is, that is in terms of, of the idea of it, requiring you to be subject to abuse and disdain and, and hardship. Those are not the things that we're talking about, and that's wrong, and it's sin. But certainly within the context of the home, we understand then that there are respective roles that God has given each, and we understand the priority and importance of that based upon the content of Genesis. Well, thirdly, another essential truth that we find in this passage is that God formed the woman out of the man. That's clearly stated. God created man and woman in amazingly different ways. God made the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 7. God formed the woman out of the side of the man in verse 22. The woman's source of origin was the man. She was fashioned out of Adam's rib, verse 21. So the woman's derivation from the man demonstrates not only equality in nature, but also demonstrates role differences. How do we know this? The Bible tells us so. According to the New Testament use of Genesis 2.22, the woman's origin from the man demonstrates the legitimacy of maintaining role differences between Christian men and women. In 1 Corinthians 11.8, Paul, citing Genesis 2.22, writes this, "...for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man." The point he seeks to prove from Genesis 2.22 is that the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of who? Man." And also that the man is the head of a woman, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, and into chapter 3. The doctrine of headship and submission is rooted in the Genesis 2 story. The role distinction Paul insists upon in his letters are based on Genesis 2. And so we see here that God's purpose and plan makes a distinction between the roles that each play. And it's predicated upon God's creative order, design, and even the formation of the woman out of the man, out of the man. It's significant in that regard um, in terms of how that formation took place and, and what that ultimately means. Henry Morris, in his really excellent book called The Book of Beginnings, notes the following, and I want to read this excerpt to you because it's very, very good. When the Creator came to the time on day six when He determined to make man, He made only one male and one female body. All the other living animals in the air and the water on and under the earth were made at least in the hundreds of pairs, if not thousands or millions. They were abundant and filled the air and sea and land, as we know from Scripture. But not so with Adam and Eve. As we know, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, Genesis 2-7. And then the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Genesis 2, 21 and 22. Notice the precise language used about the forming of Adam and the making of Eve. The Holy Spirit specifically used the Hebrew word yatsar to describe what God did to bring about the complete body of Adam. Yatsar is a hands-on verb to use to describe personal involvement like an artist painting a picture or a sculptor developing a figure. This was the first man. We know that from 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven and from Genesis 2. and was unique from everything else that had been made to that point. So again, you know, that, that's an important issue too. Man is elevated above. Dogs are not equal with humans. I'm sorry. And, we, and, and Christian friend, listen to me. We need to stop humanizing our pets. No, I'm serious. That's not what God intended. Man is the image bearer, he was created in the image of God. We need to stop worshiping our pets. giving proper priority to God's creative order. I love my pets. I love my dogs. I love my poodles. I love my horses. But I understand that God had a role and a place for them. Man is unique. We bear the image of God, the Imago Dei. We are are very unique in that way, and we ought to be mindful of that. There's value to that. This is why we live in a culture today when there's no value to human life. It's a throwaway thing. There's no respect or dignity ascribed to anybody because there's no recognition that we are the image bearers of God. We ought to be mindful of that and not so quick to diminish it by glib references to others in the context of them being humans. They are not. Now, in complete harmony with the, with, with the idea of how God created Adam, the Creator took some rib from Adam and made a woman. Our English, is, our English translations don't quite do justice to the record, Morris points out. There's a Greek word called tesla that's used, and every other time it appears in the Bible, it is translated side. Surely what God took from Adam would have included a rib, but there was muscle and other tissue as well, which is why Adam later said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. flesh She shall be called woman because she was taken out of of man. It wasn't just merely a piece of a little rib, but it was, it, there was flesh and muscle involved in it in the context of the meaning of the language, and that's significant. That's very significant. And so, again, we want to make certain that we're understanding what it is that God has done for us in Genesis chapter 2 and the roles that are ascribed relative to each one. God formed the woman out of the man. And we also then find, fourthly, that God created the woman for the man. Why was Eve created? Why was the woman created? Importantly, and this is pretty amazing stuff, notice what her name was. Woman. She didn't become Eve until after the fall. And there's a reason for that. We'll say more about that later. Cliffhanger. But it's good stuff. It has to do with... I mean, a lot of stuff, but it's good. We understand then, fourthly, that God created the woman for the man. If the first three points offend the modern sensibilities of equality, point four is totally unacceptable. Verse 18 reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to what? Be alone. I will do what? Make him a what? A helper. What? Suitable for him so the idea there is that there is a there is a purpose in the creation that is unique to their, their to their makeup to the man's makeup even in the context of what that relationship would require and the purpose of it god would ultimately declare that adam's singleness was not a good thing so god rectified the situation he he handmade a helper suitable for him Eve was not another male God didn't give Adam a drinking buddy a golf partner a farmhand He gave him Eve a woman Eve was not another male. She was not a clone of Adam, nor was she his twin. She was similar, but different. Now, in our modern world, we have lost sight of the uniqueness of that, and that is very significant. There is intrinsic value There is peace, there is contentment, there is honor, there is dignity, there is majesty in the context of God's creative order and design. I love that. And men, I think you need to recognize that in the context of your own relationship with your wife, understanding that, that the wife that God has given to you, He crafted specifically and uniquely for you. In the context of the creative order in the mandate. What he did for you and what he did for Adam was to, was to provide and to meet a need that was significant. And we need to be cognizant of that and, and, and aware of it. Keeping in mind this too, Eve had her own biology, her own physiology, and her own psychology. She was made to complement the man, to help him populate and rule the earth, and to unite with him as a loving companion partner. I'll say this, God gave the woman to the man primarily as a lover, as a, as a companion in the context of romantic friendship. Adam was alone. Again, this wasn't a buddy, this wasn't a farmhand, this was a woman. Uniquely crafted and designed by God to bring about a unique relationship unlike anything else on the planet. You ever seen stallions and mares together in a pasture? They're not very tender with each other. It's not a good thing often. You have to keep them separate most of the time. But God did not intend that for us. And I think men need to understand this and appreciate their responsibility then to love their wife in the context of how God made them, uniquely designed them, crafted them specifically to provide and meet a need that is unique to men and that are unique to women in the context of the man's role. She was his helpmeet. She was there to provide comfort and assistance, to do all those wonderful things that God has ordained. Well, we're running out of time. We'll leave off there. We'll pick up with point number five next week. But again, bear in mind what it is that we are finding here in Genesis chapter 2. This is not optional. This is not something that's negotiable. It is what God has said. And keeping in mind this, whenever God did something in the book of Genesis, he concluded it by saying what? And it was good. This is good. What God has done and what God does is always good. We need to get into the mindset that we reject what the world has to say. The world says this is bad, this is nonsense, this is error. This is wrong. This leads to all sorts of problems. No, it doesn't. I would submit to you that the rejection of it has caused most of our problems. The destruction of the family, the undermining of relationships and roles and responsibilities has been cataclysmic for us as a nation and as a people and as a church. This stuff creeps into the church. It wreaks havoc. You reject Genesis chapter 2, you're going to have chaos in the church in a variety of different ways. And so let us approach these passages in humility. Well, you may say, Pastor, that's easy to say because you're a guy. Okay, fine. I can't even argue that. But what I will say is that there are responsibilities that I have been given and that all men have been given that are unique and and, um, significant as it relates to the roles and responsibilities that God has ordered. And men, we need to follow them and fulfill them, and we'll talk more about that. Now, as a believer, we rely upon God's word and we trust it. It is the truth. I believe it. I rest in it. I don't reject it. I can ask questions about it, but at the end of the day, I have to resolve them in the context of God's word. And this is what we find. And so in faith and in trust, we accept what God has said, and we know that he has done it for our good. He does all things well. He's perfect. He is perfect, and he loves us beyond measure. He would never do anything for us or to us that would be harmful to us or require us to believe something that would be in some way harmful for us. To think otherwise is just to buy into the lie of Satan and to be deceived, which can be a problem, as we well know. Let's pray, and the next week, Lord willing, we'll pick back up here with our fifth point. Lord, we love you. Thank you for these important points that we're reading and understanding from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart of humility, that you would help us to approach these, understanding that these are your words to us today, that they are relevant and pertinent and applicable. We pray, Lord, that we would be um, people of the word, that you would be glorified in our worship of you as we ponder these things and, and, and look at them and apply them to our life. Help us to do so in a way that reflects your glory and your majesty. We pray in Christ's name, amen. God bless you.